don't understand. I could have had class. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. We've got a pretty spectacular episode for you today, folks. One of the most famous faces in showbiz, the king of late night television in America for the last 30 years, Conan O'Brien is your guest on Second Captain Saturday. Yes, you heard that right. Conan O'Brien is today's guest. Welcome to the show. Oh, McDevitt here with Kira Murphy. Hey, Murphy. Hey there, Owen. How's I it going? I don't know if I've ever been as excited about a guest as I am today. This is someone we've watched and admired for so long, and now we get the chance to talk with him. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're dealing with a man, Owen, of towering intellect, who's also more than happy to make a complete idiot out of himself. <laughs> his anarchic humour, his ability to laugh at himself, his physical comedy, there genuinely hasn't been anyone funnier for longer on the biggest shows on US television than Conan. He's been a hero of mine for 15 years and today is the day we talk to him Before on. embarking on his career in late night TV that made him a worldwide star, Conan studied history and literature at Harvard and that's Harvard and initially made his name behind the scenes as a comedy writer with some iconic TV shows. It was his genius comic mind that dreamed up the monorail episode in The Simpsons, which remains the greatest episode in Simpsons history. Don't even dream of coming at me with Sideshow Bob getting no, out of jail. Man. I have no interest in Monorail for me. But yeah, does he have any hidden sporting talents that might get him to the top of our greatest non-sports person, sports person leaderboard? We're about to find out. Murph, I don't want to keep the people waiting. We're doing things differently today. Let's rattle through the rules and this season's leaderboard as quickly as we can so we can speak to the man himself straight away. I could have been a contender. Glamorous global editor-in-chief Samantha Barry hung on to top spot despite a concerted assault on the summit by fellow Corkonian Theo Dorgan last week. Her 78 points is still good enough to lead as we approach the halfway stage in this season. So I'm going to rate Conan's sporting achievements, his all-time sporting highlight, uh-huh. and I'll even nominate a sports star that I believe most reminds me of the great man before giving him his precious score out of 100. Conan O'Brien knows what he has to do, but has he the stuff to do it on, and can he go out and do it? Today's guest has had one of the most remarkable and unique careers in American television history, and he's done it all while wearing his Irishness on his sleeve. First as a writer with the cultural institutions of Saturday Night Live and The Simpsons, then for nearly three decades as a late-night talk show host, the holy grail of broadcasting in the US, and more recently as the presenter of the excellent podcast Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend. He reportedly keeps his four Emmy Awards locked away, gathering dust in his basement, (laughs) which is exactly where those tin pots belong in comparison to the award on offer today as he looks to fulfil his destiny by becoming the second captain's greatest non-sports person sports person of 2023, (laughs) Conan O'Brien. It's an honour. Thank you so much. It's an honour to be here, gentlemen. Uh, Thank you. You know, it's funny because... I have a friend who's also of uh, Irish descent, also misfortunate in that way. And uh, he saw that I keep my Emmys and he said, oh, that's an, uh, in the basement in literally a little cupboard. And he said, that's your Irish award closet, which is how it, I, I'm telling you, it's in the blood where we put those things away. Yeah. You know, we're not we're ashamed of them. Anything like that has to be put away. Are you feeling confident about exposing your sporting credentials for the world to see this afternoon? Yes, I'm confident that I'll disappoint your listeners, but I say let's have at it. Why not? Why not go for it? Uh, You once said people who aren't jocks always use jock analogies because it's their way of pretending they're jocks. So how long did it take you to realize that you were never going to be a jock? 
Well, those things get sorted out very quickly, Murph. Mm. Uh, let me tell you, those things are sorted out by the time you're about, I think, nine years old. Mm. Um, and for me, uh, it was seeing what real jocks look like and how they play. And uh, my father once said to me, you know, the problem with our family is, speaking of all of us, my brothers and I, he said, our problem is, he said, in sports, you really have to care where the ball is, passionately. You need to care where it is. And he said, I don't think any of us care where the ball is. <laughs> and I think, that's, I think that's true, meaning I'll see where the ball is. Let's say it's baseball uh, or football, and I'll start moving towards it. But if I connect with that ball or not is not of prime importance to me. So that, I think, was crucial because I'm endowed with incredible physical skills. Of course. Mm. But I just didn't have, yes, thank you. Thank you, sir. <laughs> but I didn't have the, the drive. We are counting, you'll be glad to know, tap dancing as a sport. So you can get some early points oh, on you. the board here. You did a bit of tap yes, dancing? Yes, I did, I did. I was under the mistaken impression as a little orange haired boy in Boston that uh, if I wanted to go into show business, I needed to know how to tap dance. Mm because TV at the time uh, was only showing old movies when I could be watching television. <laughs> so I was watching Jimmy Cagney and all these movies from the 1930s, and I thought that's what show business was. Little did I know that uh, I was coming of age during the punk era. And so no, Joe Strummer didn't need to know how to tap dance. And well, neither did any of the entertainers of my, some of my say, generation. Some would say The Clash would have been a far better band <laughs> if Joe Strummer had actually shown some real commitment to the, the business we call show. Yeah, that's probably, but I don't know. It was still The Clash. We can't second guess it. It was magical. It was beautiful. And so what that he sang like a seal that was in pain. Uh, they were incredible. <laughs> they were incredible. What was, it, uh, what was the scene, if I can drill down into those tap dancing classes, what, what was the setup? My mother saw that I was very serious about this. So she asked around and she found out that a protege of Bill Bojangles Robinson, who danced in those classic movies with Shirley Temple, uh, his name was Stanley Brown and that he was teaching uh, over near the Berkeley School of Music in Boston. So I would go over there with my tap shoes as an 11-year-old, and I would walk up six flights of stairs in a very dilapidated building, and this old black man named Stanley Brown would teach me soft shoe moves, and I thought, yeah, I need to get this sorted. All around me were uh, young, beautiful, predominantly black women who were learning jazz tap, who were confused, why is this little red-haired girl here? <laughs> why? What's this, this strange kid with the bowl haircut doing here named Conan? Uh, so, yeah, I, I'm glad that we've put the spotlight on this shameful part of my career. Um, and I blame both of you I'm sure, for bringing no, this to Ireland. Listen, I'm sure the red hair and freckles helped to alleviate any social anxiety you felt as a nerdy, non-sporty kid. But are you blessed with the same real Irish traits as myself and Murph here? I've got two questions for you that will establish once and for all your bona fides as an Irishman. Do you apologize every second or third word you say? For example, sorry, could I get a coffee there? Sorry for asking. Just thanks. Sorry again. Yes, lots of lots of sorry, uh, especially if I'm it's funny because it's a, you guys are it's a sports show. If I'm playing any sport with anyone, I apologize constantly for my mistakes. So if I'm batting, I mean, uh, the sorries are flying left and right. 
uh, at uh, Bjorn Borg speed <laughs> when I'm trying to bat at a, a tennis ball because it's always flying over the fence uh, into the freeway. And uh, sorry, 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 sorry. I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. So yes, that's a problem. Well, that's excellent. And do you always turn something down at least twice before accepting it, even though you really want it? As in, do you want to lift somewhere? No, no, I couldn't possibly. No, you're okay. Yes. Turn down, <laughs> turn down everything. And apparently that's also a, a trait in Japan. I'm told that uh, Japanese businessmen will need to routinely refuse something like three or four times and that you have to keep asking. And if you stop asking, they're insulted. Uh, <laughs> and so I think that's a way in which the Japanese and the Irish are very similar, which is no, no, I'm fine. So if I'm let's say my heart has failed and it's not beating. Uh, and someone says, I have defibrillating paddles right here and I could restart your heart. I would say, I'm good. No. And then if they would say, no, 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 I'm serious. We've, we could put some gel on your chest and shock you and we, could, and we could get your heart going again and you can continue to live and be in the bosom of your family. No, 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 I'm fine, thanks. Don't worry about me. Third time, I would say, yeah, I probably need uh, I, I need those defibrillators. If you're doing literally nothing else right now, then maybe, yes, defibrillate me. But otherwise, yes. but again, I don't want to put you in any hassle, please. Or maybe I could get to the store and buy my own defibrillators. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love, Is there a defibrillation store nearby? I love that you're as anxious as everybody else over here about inconveniencing other people at any point. You came from, you grew up in Brookline in a big Irish family, as you referenced Brookline there. is right. I'll educate anyone listening right now. Brookline is literally almost part of Boston. It's right, right. on the Boston line. So um, I can walk out the door. My parents still live in the home I grew up in. I can walk out that door and walk into Boston at a leisurely pace in about four minutes. So uh, it's, it, it, it's as close as you can get to Boston without being in Boston. Uh, it's also historical fact, the birthplace of uh, of John F. Kennedy. He was born in, in Brookline, mm -hmm. Massachusetts. And also, I think, the bass player for Aerosmith. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> was he Irish as well? No, he wasn't. We're trying to we're we're trying to get him into the into the clan, yeah, but yeah, no, I don't yeah. think so. In what ways do you think was your upbringing recognizably Irish, Con? Very Catholic. Both my parents are very Irish Catholic, um, and my people, uh, my I think my mo mother's side came from the Cork area. My father's side came from Dungarvan, Waterford, down by the water. Yeah. And um, they came to this country and they moved to the central Massachusetts uh, to take up farming. And Irish married Irish, um, I was the first one to deviate. So I got, I love to say, I got jungle fever and uh, married a, a woman who's Irish but also has some Welsh and Scotch. <laughs> so I'm the one, I'm the wow. one that went crazy uh, and, and dabbled in the dark arts. Uh, my wife, uh, you know, has some of that, that, that old wasp Protestant line in her, uh, but um, yeah, very Irish Catholic, uh, lots of church, lots of religious instruction, lots of Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, if anyone dropped any, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. So yeah, uh, lots of guilt, lots of repression, Sex is never discovered. Uh, discovered. It's never, well, actually, in my case, it was never discovered. Uh, <laughs> sex is never discussed. 
yet it's all one thinks about. Um, so yeah, I think it's all, and I had a genetic test a couple of years ago and I worked it into my standup, but I went to, I had my genetic, my, my, uh, my genes tested. I had a DNA test and the doctor called me and he said, well, this is quite unusual. He said, you are 100.00% Irish. <laughs> and this is after being in the United States, you know, since, uh, 18, you know, 70. Yeah. You can't so be 100% that... Irish. Dude, there are Irish people listening who can, who aren't 100% Irish. Or, no, no, no. I was saying you could, I could, I could go to, uh, I could go to Ireland and tackle, and, and, and tackle a leprechaun and, and gra grab his saliva and you'd see like, yeah, he's a little Spanish. There's, <laughs> you know, there's some Italian in there. No, it's absurd. And I said to the doctor, what does that mean? And he said, it means you're inbred, you idiot. <laughs> you're, you're an Irish hillbilly. Uh, so, um, yeah, it was, we, uh, so yes, it, we were about as, I'm as Irish as you can be not having lived in Ireland and maybe in some ways more so. Was there, did a time come in your career when the way that you looked, your background, physically how you were, did you realize hang on, I can actually use this to my advantage in my career. Yes, yes. You take, uh, I think everybody takes stock of what they have and what they don't have. I like to liken it to if you play a video game, one of those you know, first person games, you immediately, if you look at the screen, you're told, what do you have in your arsenal? You know, so, okay, my character has, can shoot arrows, can levitate, and can, uh, if I press control alt seven, it can fly across the room and kick somebody. Um, and I can throw a, a pigeon at someone and they'll burst into flames. You, you count up what you have and what you don't have. And I learned early on that uh, my hair could do this thing. My first name is funny. And I had a certain look and I have a certain physicality and a way of talking, and all these things can be used. And I used all of them. I doubled down and doubled down on it. And I'll never forget, uh, keep in mind, born and raised in America, been in this country, came over, uh, you know, potato famine, Irish immigrants. And when they announced that Conan O'Brien was going to get a talk show in 1993, uh, Howard Stern, who's the biggest radio star in America, mm -hmm said Conan a guy named Conan O'Brien's getting a show, why couldn't they have hired someone from America? And he really thought, like they, they went to Dublin or Belfast and got this guy. <laughs> so yeah. He was the first person to see your DNA test, obviously. Yes, I was, yes. He was the one that identified immediately, he should be back home. So uh, yeah, I think I've used a lot of those things. You know, you, it's hard to generalize, but clearly there's something in our history of, of uh, our people, I'll use that term. I know Irish people maybe sometimes get their back up if, if an Irish American is saying we, but I think there is something in the Irish stew that makes us that, you know, we're obviously, we know how to talk mm. and we're pretty good storytellers and there are certain things uh, that we excel at and I think we're good at painting visual pictures and all those things probably come from undoubtedly some part of my lineage, but I was able to think of things in a visual way, which clearly helped me, even uh, uh, it helped me on uh, The Simpsons, 
but on Saturday Night Live, a lot of my sketches were very visual. Mm. They weren't so much about wordplay. They were very, uh, I would think in terms of what would look funny. And I do think that's part of our, that's, that's something that might be Celtic is this uh, imagery that, that runs around in our heads and this magical thinking. Um, not good for a lot of things, but uh, maybe, maybe helpful when you need to think of something silly, you know, to earn your paycheck. Yeah, um, because, you know, obviously different ethnic groups, you know, massive immigrant ethnic groups in America you know, they made their way in different ways. You know, like the the style of the the, the Jewish uh, comedian, the Mel Brooks, uh, yep. Woody Allen. Talk to us a little bit, maybe, about what you think the kind of the Irish gift in that in that realm is. Like the Italian American crooner, for instance. You know, but like, where does yeah. the Irish American experience fit into all that? I wonder. It's funny because I just noticed again. I, I this relates to you guys, and it relate relates to our people. And again, it's a generalization. So obviously there are lots of exceptions out there, but I think, you know, the people talk about the gift of gab, and I, I think Irish people can talk their way, we can talk to anybody. And I remember my grandfather was a traffic cop in Worcester, Massachusetts. Of course, he was closer to Ireland than I was, but he was legendary. Um, anywhere he went, he could talk to anybody and my father was once on a road trip with my grandfather, and this is uh, my mother's father, and we called him Hoofer, because he actually knew a couple of dance moves, mm. and they used to call tap dancers Hoofers. So we called him Hoofer, and his, his name, real name was James Reardon, and uh, he was on a trip, and my father said we were going through the American West, and we stopped at a gas station, and there was no one around, and my father went inside to try and buy a map, and he walked back out again, and Hoofer was standing across the road talking to somebody. And he said there was nobody when we pulled in, nobody. <laughs> and within five minutes, someone materialized, and Hoofer's talking to him. And I think I have that quality. Um, I talk to everybody, and I people obviously, they'll recognize me uh, often, and say, oh, hi, Conan, what's up? And I'll say, how are you? And they'll want a selfie. But then I'll keep the conversation going until they say, you know, Conan, <laughs> I really have to go. <laughs> and, my, and my wife has seen that happen hundreds of times. Where they, you know, so if I'm, you know, where are you guys? You guys in Dublin? Yeah. yeah. Okay, well, if I came to Dublin and hung out with you guys, if anybody came over to the table, I'd start talking to them to the point where you guys would say, uh, Conan, you got to cut that off. You know, <laughs> it's time. You've you've spent forty minutes with that person, and they're uh, and they're out of their mind. Um, so I don't know. I think that's that's something we have. And you look at you know so many of the as you talked about the American talk show, and and what an you know what's a superpower that would really help you. I did it for 30 years. I've done thousands of hours of broadcasting. And there are many times where I was out there with people who had nothing to say. So I would talk. <laughs> and I'd say, oh, okay, well, I know you've got a brand new show on the WB and you're 19. You haven't had a lot of life experience. Tell me, uh, you know, you know, uh, little Billy, uh, what's, it, uh, what's it like? You have this new show. I don't know. It's okay. That's interesting you say it's okay because what I'll tell you that I think. And then I would talk for the entire time, and when the show was over, 
the producer would say, you know, that little Billy kid, he was pretty good. And I'd say, he was shit! What do you mean he was pretty good? I talked! I talked for 25 minutes. I told 15 stories. Oh, I don't know that I heard some laughs. Yeah, those were my laughs. <laughs> Little Billy didn't do anything. So I don't know. I think we have that. I do think we have that. How intense was that for you doing that night after night for so long? Uh, you get accustomed to anything. I'm only realizing how intense it is now because two years ago, I decided I've got to stop. And I'm, I love doing the podcast. And I, I had found these other things and I wanted to try other things. I didn't want to stay at the party so long that I was asked to leave. Mm -hmm. I thought, you know, it's the Irish goodbye. I really want to just say, this was lovely, and sneak out the back door, uh, and then have people notice I'm gone, and maybe some of them say, oh, that's too bad, I enjoyed him. But <laughs> don't stay until they're, they're, they're flicking the lights and telling everyone to, to get out. So I left, and I'm, in the last two years, I'm realizing, how focused I was and how much work that was and how uh, things got easier over time. But still, when you have to do an hour every day and you want it to be good and you want it to have produced comedy and you want to make sure you have a good interview and there's an audience and a band, you uh, it wears on you. So I think I'm noticing it now that I've stopped. Mm. I'm noticing it so much more now that uh, there's no blood in my urine anymore. I'm told that's, that's a, a good, that's a good sign. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah it say. cleared up. About six months ago, it really cleared up. <laughs> so could you, there are obviously, you, you did it for so long for a reason though. Those high points that you hit where you have an amazing show, you get the reaction you want from an audience. Is it possible, I know it's not always easy to describe a feeling, but is it possible to describe for people listening what that feels like when you feel right on top of your game in, 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 a, in an iconic show like that? Well, I'll say this. I'll say that anyone listening knows the feeling because and it's, uh, uh, we've all, everybody in their life has, a, has moments where things all come together and whatever your profession is. And you guys know what it's like. You, it's just, you have an interview, you have these moments where it just all came together and the whole day felt very satisfying. Um, it's not unique. I, I would say what, what makes it, those moments when everything was working beautifully, here's the trick. If you are uh, ambitious as I am and you're obsessive compulsive and you want it to be that way all the time, you're always chasing it. And you're chasing that high and then you get everything to line up. I mean, everything lines up. Norm MacDonald's on the show, the guest is Radiohead, um, the, co the audience is spectacular, the comedy all works that we've come up with. There are magical moments, found moments. Uh, just everything's magical. And what happens is when it's over is you want that the next night. Mm. And of course, the next night, it's not, the, it's not that combination. You know, It's Little Billy from the WB show. Uh, it's a band that you've never heard of that sounds like they're out of tune. Uh, it's comedy that doesn't quite have it and you're trying to the last second to get it there. So then you're chasing that high. And although I'm fortunate, I haven't had any you know, issues with drugs or anything, but I think that's biochemical. People that 
they feel that high and they're chasing it and they want it and they never, and, and, and you, so you never get everything to line up. And if it does line up, which is very rare and it's perfect, you're obsessed with how do I get that back? I want that tomorrow night. Or I want, and then if you don't get it that night, you're enraged and you want it the night after that. So all these complicated feelings come out. I've lost it. I had it two nights ago, but now it's gone. Um, and any moment in my you know, years and years of doing it when I thought that have moments where we'd have a couple of weeks where it really felt like it was gelling. And I would think, you know, I think I got this down. I got this down. And whenever you think that, you're handed your hat in the next episode. It's just, you can't get anything to go. And I think that's true in sports, clearly. I think it's true all through the arts. It's true in business. Um, it, it just, ha you know, whenever you start to think, I think I've made it, uh, that's when the real, <laughs> that's when you get sent back to square one. It sounds like you put a lot of, and always have put a lot of pressure on yourself though, Conan, is that? the case going right back to your days with Saturday Night Live as a writer and The Simpsons. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. This is, uh, by the way, you guys would be excellent therapists. <laughs> um, and you'd clean up. You'd make so much money here in Los Angeles. Uh, yes. I think that's been a problem. I think there are times where I put so much pressure on myself that it made it more difficult to think. And particularly, you know, The Simpsons... Uh, was interesting because it was very much, you'd go off on your own and think of your episode, but then all the other writers would come together and help and add to it. And, 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 and it was very collaborative in that way. Saturday Night Live, if you think about it, there's 90 minutes of show, but then there's music plays twice. So, and there's weekend update. So really there's, you know, about a less than an hour of sketches and there's a lot of writers and there's not much room and so you're you're really there's no way around it you're fighting other people to see if you can get your sketch on and if your sketch gets on it means someone else's won't so that was nerve-wracking because there are nights where you're there at 30 rock and you're wandering the halls and you all you see is and you don't have an idea and it's two o'clock in the morning and all the other it's dark and all the other doors are shut and all you hear behind those doors is laughter. Because boy, the people behind that door have a great idea. And they're laughing. And you're thinking, okay, I'll go to this, maybe I'll go to the soda machine <laughs> on the sixth floor. And that'll give me an idea. And you don't get an idea and you come back up. You hear more laughter. And uh, it's a lonely feeling to go through that. But uh, um, I, so I've preferred my late night show and everything I've worked on since has been very collaborative. I just like, I think because I'm one of six kids, I like having people around. And I love just having that group and that back and forth and that sense of we're all making this together. I've always loved that. And when I'm on my own, I, get, I go into a dark place. For people who aren't maybe 
as familiar with Saturday Night Live and the writer's room, that scenario. Yeah. Basically, everyone throws ideas into a hat. There is like one guy at the top of it all, Lauren Michaels, who decides what's funny and what's not not funny. And you get instant judgment in that moment. So you come to a, an ideas meeting on a Tuesday or something or a Wednesday. You suggest something. You don't have to wait, you know, three to five days for an email to land in your uh, or, you know, a memo to land on your desk right. and say, Conan, after consideration, we've decided not to go with your sketch. Mm. It's literally instantaneous. Your peers think you're A, funny, or B, <laughs> not funny. Now, I mean, you know, pressure is, you know, uh, open heart surgery and all the rest of that, of course. But there has to be a certain personality type, I think, that would put themselves through that. Uh, for well, two Murph, or three years. I'll tell you, I've operated on people's hearts, and it's very easy. It's really not that big a deal. <laughs> it's really not that big a deal. You know, if you have the right tools, scalpel, a stapler, uh, and I, that's a breeze. Um, what? So I have no pity for surgeons. If yeah, you're listening, <laughs> surgeons, I think you. It's ridiculous how easy you do. Uh, what you do is um, we comedians are the real heroes. Exactly. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Not people who fight in wars or, or, or risk their lives or try to help the sick. It's the comedians that deserve monuments. <laughs> um, I'm glad we got that out there. That's been something I've been pushing for for a long time and getting no traction here in the States. <laughs> well, see, but I, um, well, specifically what happens is you can, you don't pitch the idea. Sure, you pitch ideas, but a lot of times you don't even pitch the idea. You go and you write it up. And then all the scripts are read around a giant table on Wednesday. It's uh, called read through. And Lauren Michaels sits at the head of the table and they read through with all the whole, with the entire cast there, they read through the, all the sketches and the sketches get laughs or they don't get laughs. If they don't get laughs, obviously you kind of know your fate, but sometimes your sketch would get some laughs, gets or get pretty good laughs or a lot of laughs but because of other factors, maybe the host wasn't in it and the host doesn't have enough sketches, maybe uh, it's a little technically hard to do or it, or it uses up two sets. For, for whatever reason, you're, you, you wait and you wait around like those old movie depictions of a dad waiting for the child to be born, like pacing back and forth in a 1950s suit and then a nurse comes in and says, you have a boy. You, you wait around and then finally they say the show's been picked and you go rushing into Lauren's office and you see a board and if your card is, is up on the cork board, that means you're in the show. If it's off to the side of the cork board, you know you're out. And that was this moment of just, yeah, you just spent the last three days working on something and your card is floating in space, <laughs> you know? And, uh, you know, it's uh, that that's rough, but um, I do defend that system. I think Lauren Michaels uh, clearly, I mean, he's been doing it for almost 50 years and it's an unprecedented television show. He is, he has impeccable taste. And I think he did, he created a system that isn't necessarily kind, but it works most of the time. And, um, it, uh, you know, you just have to, everyone I know there, I mean, all these brilliant writers, uh, all of us and, and performers, everybody acknowledges that, yeah, that's, it's a, it's a jungle, but it's, that's how it is. 
that's how it is and you accept it. So um, it's pressure, but I still think it's a show that's produced just so much brilliant comedy and so many m amazing moments over the years that maybe that's the correct system. Is it right, Conan, that after you quit Saturday Night Live, before you started with The Simpsons, feeling somewhat burnt out, you spent a period of time wandering around New York City yeah, reading Seamus Heaney poetry. Seamus <laughs> Heaney, yeah. Yeah, I mean, talk about what an Irish cliche. <laughs> I was going through a bad time in my personal life <laughs> and I was burnt out. So I told Lauren, who was very nice and kept saying, no, 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 stay, please. You know, you, you don't even have to come into the office. You can send stuff in. And I said, Lauren, I appreciate that, but I really have to go. Um, and then... Uh, someone lent me there. I was crashing in someone else's apartment and wandering around the Upper West Side of Manhattan over by Riverside Drive. And I, I wandered into a bookstore and bought a used copy of Seamus Heaney poems and was walking around just this ridiculous stereotype <laughs> of, you know, the sad Irish lad walking around with his Seamus Heaney poems and sitting on park benches. And I thought, this is what I'll do. I've got some money saved. I'll just wander the streets and read Seamus Heaney and, <laughs> and I'll, I'll drink some coffee and I'll think. And about two days later, I got a call from someone at The Simpsons that said, hey, we hear you're available. Do you want to come out and write on The Simpsons? And I said, okay. <laughs> you know, well, uh, Chuck the Seamus, Chuck the Seamus Heaney into a garbage bin <laughs> and went out and, and wrote for Homer. Well, so. see, you know, I don't want to tell you that you're doing Irish poetry wrong, Conan. I would never dream of doing that. But a former guest on this show, the author Fintan O'Toole, uh, created uh -huh. a key indicator for how screwed up the world was at any given moment. So based, this was basically based on how, many, how often lines from W.B. Yeats poems were used online after the election of Donald Trump. <laughs> so the more quotable yep. Yeats seems to be to commentators and politicians, the worse things are. As a counterexample, yes. we might try the Heaney test. If hope and history rhyme... Let the good times roll. So you had it the wrong way around. You should have been reading Yates. And the second the Simpsons uh, call came in, then you get the Heaney out. But listen, you I live blew it. Yeah. I blew it. I should have gone with Yates. I, you know, I don't know if you have, you, uh, you obviously guys know Bill Burr, yeah. the, uh, the wonderful, uh, just fantastic comedian. Um, yeah, Bill Burr is a big fan of. Yates, and he got mad at me because I started telling him that Yates, late in life, wanted to uh, have more vigor in the bedroom and started having uh, the like mashed up endocrine cells of monkeys injected yes. into his junk. Correct. And and Burr, Burr got really mad. He's like, what are you telling me this? What are you telling me this for? Don't I like Yates. What are you telling me this for? I'm like, hey, look, I'm, you know, you got to know the whole thing. Yeah, okay. Falcon cannot hear the falconer. Great. But also, that guy was injecting monkeys <laughs> into his body late in life. I don't want to hear it. Shut up, Conan. Shut up. So, uh, yeah. Let's, I'm just going to leave that little fact out there for people listening right now. Well, if you are listening today and if you've just joined the show, yes, the voice you're hearing is exactly who you think it is. The great Conan O'Brien is our guest on Second Captain Saturday. Conan has done many thousands of shows over the years, perhaps known as pointlessly stupid as what's coming up after the break as we rank his sporting life to see if he can uh, become... Here we go. Yeah, it's coming up. Our 2023 greatest non-sports person, sports person. Previous superstar American guests have included Malcolm Gladwell, who got 88 points for beating 
beating a future oh, wow. Olympian in a 1500 meter race. Richard Ford got 84 points because he met Muhammad Ali once. Mm-hmm. And Senator George Mitchell amassed 81 points for, well, nothing to do with sport really, but he did bring peace to Northern Ireland. He did. As far as I'm aware, Murph Conan just sort of sat in his hands around the Good Friday <laughs> Agreement period. Well, on his silence was deafening. Uh, you're an all right, Jack, American isolationist like Charles Lindbergh. You'd have, do, you'd have done Lindy proud over the course of the Good Friday yes. Agreement. I would have. I am going to listen. I stayed out of it. I just thought I'd only muck it up. So I thought it was great, very heroic and wise of me to stay out of those accords. And I think it was for the better. We're back after these. Second captain, first captain, whatever. Welcome back to Second Captain Saturday with Owen McDevitt and this week's very special guest. So special, we don't even need to use his surname. Kind of like Elvis or LeBron. Or, uh, or Enya. Enya, yeah. Conan is or all you need to Or Cher. Yeah. <laughs> Conan is all you need to hear. You know who we're talking about. Uh, well, I do have some bad news to break to Conan because he may have seen off any threat posed by Conan the Barbarian to become the foremost Conan in the United States. But over in our neck of the woods, he's forgetting about Ireland's rugby superstar about to go to the World Cup, Jack Conan. And as far as I'm aware, Conan O'Brien has never even been capped for Ireland in rugby. Exactly. I don't know much about the game. I know there's a lot of rolling around and men hugging each other. Uh, it looks slightly erotic, uh, which is why I'm a fan. Um, <laughs> I'd like to be in the, in the middle of a scrum. If anyone else uh, out there is interested, I'll give you my text. He's got a lot of that's pretty much for the it. To be honest, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. That, that's pretty much the game. If you enjoy that sort of thing, then let's go. I'm for ready it. to go. Yeah, <laughs> I love the I love the the shirts, the rugby shirts. I mean, I'm down with the whole thing. The ball was an odd shape. I think we could improve upon that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I I always, I've seen no rules. Mm. I've watched rugby. I don't see that there are any rules. I think we need to institute a few. And why is the ground always? So fucking muddy. I mean, let's clean that up. My name is Conan O'Brien, and I have some notes, (laughs) he says to World Rugby. (laughs) I do. I have notes on rugby, and I think all of Ireland can't wait to hear my take. We've established that you might not have been an elite athlete growing up, Conan, but all is not lost because you did play basketball as a kid. And in fact, well, the way you approached the game is probably different to many others, I would say. Yeah, I looked at basic at, at uh, basketball, which I loved playing. Uh, I wasn't very good, but I looked at it as a way to work on my comedy. So <laughs> I would play as different characters, and oh God. Um, uh, I would, and I would have the t- people laughing. The kids that I was playing with would be laughing, um, and I would not. I would talk nonstop, and I would narrate the game, and I would describe who I was and what my background was and how I had done time. For assaulting someone in the in the stands, I mean, I would I would go to great lengths to to just talk and talk and talk, and they would laugh, but I don't think I contributed much to the game. Now, flash to it's the nine, it's nineteen eighty eight, and I'm doing a working on a stage show in Chicago, and uh, famous Bob Odenkirk at the time is one of my friends, and he's a writer on the show uh, on Saturday Night Live, and we're both working along with some others on this stage show in Chicago. And Bob and I used to pass the time by shooting baskets. And of course, I just can't shoot baskets like anyone else. So I used to pull my shirt up over my head so I couldn't see and then declare with great self-importance that I was the phantom. (laughs) And Bob would just be giggling and asking the phantom, interviewing the phantom. And I would say, I'm such a great basketball player. No one can know my identity. I am the Phantom. And then, of course, if your shirt's over your head, you can't see shit. So I was hurling the ball. It was oftentimes leaving the court completely. 
And uh, it was that's the that's how I play sports. I use it as a conduit to uh, try and do comedy. And um, the the ball rarely goes through the hoop, uh, especially yeah. So it's. Uh, I think people would maybe enjoy playing basketball with me for about four minutes, <laughs> and then they'd, they'd say, "Okay, enough uh, already. Move along. <laughs> enough already. We really, we really want to play basketball." <laughs> well, in fairness, it's not just about playing a sport. You, there's other ways to insert yourself into these things. I'm a WWE fan. Well, I say that. I mean, I was when I was 11 years of age. My all-time hero being Brutus the Barber Beefcake. If you had to push me, Conan, maybe the big boss man. But listen, I'll move on. Uh, so I was very impressed. I took you. I took you for a beefcake man right away. <laughs> <laughs> so I was very impressed that you managed to get one of your lines into WWE folklore through a former yes! writer of yours. Yes, uh, a writer of mine who's very brilliant uh, named Tommy Blacha. He worked with us for a number of years and then he moved on and he was uh, uh, obsessed with the WWE and uh, he went to work for them and he was working with a star there at the time uh, named The Rock. And this is before The Rock was in movies. And his job was to come up with lines for The Rock so he borrowed one of mine. Sometimes when I was in the writer's room, if a writer said something uh, or went on some tangent I didn't like, or I thought they, I would tell them, why don't you have a nice tall glass of shut up juice? Uh, which is very, I, I understand infantile, uh, that's not great HR humor, anyone? But it, yeah, but it really made, it really made <laughs> me laugh and some other people laugh. So we're like, hey, you know what you might like right now? Big tall glass of shut up juice. <laughs> And so Tommy Blotcha took that and he gave it to The Rock and he told me he had done it. And so I tuned in and sure enough, The Rock is, on, is there in the ring and he's taunting his opponent and he says, and you know what I think you ought to do? I think you ought to have a nice tall glass of shut up juice. <laughs> and the crowd went crazy. And then the following week, there were people, there was a person in the, Tommy showed this to me, there was a person <laughs> in the arena who held up when The Rock came out a, a poster that they had made that they were in, in a cardboard that had a big tall glass and it said, shut up, Juice. <laughs> I was so excited. I don't know when I've been that excited that I actually got a, a line into, uh, to come out of Dwayne The Rock Johnson's mouth. That made me so happy. Oh, that would have been the dream for me. We're getting down to the business end now, right? We have, we're going to rank your sporting career in a moment. But all first right. of all, you haven't Prepare. picked a highlight yet, though. You haven't picked a highlight. Prepare You're going to pick a highlight from your glittering okay. sporting career. So what is Conan O'Brien's sporting highlight? All right. Well, if you were from Boston, you got to be, it's Red Sox, Red Sox, Red Sox. And uh, one of the greats of all time for the Red Sox, Carlton Fisk, their catcher. Uh, and when it was in the 1975 World Series, uh, game six, tense game with the Reds. Carlton Fisk hits that iconic home run that's looping, looping, looping. Looks like it might go foul. And Carlton Fisk is waving, willing it to not go foul, and it doesn't. And the Red Sox win that game, and it's an electric moment. It would have been maybe two or three years later that uh, that I'm sitting in out in left field and Carlton Fisk hits a foul ball and he hits it hard and it caroms off of a seat and I catch it. Now, and the people around me uh, applaud. And I don't think I can top that. I don't think I can, I can ever come close to topping that. Uh, 
that was just a great moment for me, a transformative moment to actually know that this ball had just come off of Carlton Fisk's bat. Years later, when I get my own show, I insist we have Carlton Fisk on and I get to talk to him and I kept showing him winning that, hitting that home run over and over again. People were probably wondering, because it's a national TV show, why is he obsessed with the 1975 World Series and this is the team that lost and why does he keep showing this footage? Because it's my show and I can do whatever I want. <laughs> this is incredible. So hang on, this ball is flying into the stands. We're talking about a clean catch here. No, not a clean catch. I have to be honest with you. It caromed off of a seat and I caught it. So no, not a clean catch. Wow. A lot of the velocity was taken by the seat. Okay. So it's not a clean catch. And if you know what, if nothing else, I'm honest. And I think it didn't help that I had my shirt pulled over my head. I was the phantom in that moment. <laughs> the phantom always catches a foul ball. <laughs> I love the way you talked about it, Carlton. I have to say, it's an Irish audience. Maybe we're not all too familiar with Carlton Fisk's work, but I'm, uh, I'm glad you clarified what happened in Game 7 of the World Series because, unfortunately for you as a kid, these are the kind of things, this is the fate that would befall Boston sports teams. yeah. In, in Game Seven, uh, we lose, and uh, Boston Red Sox famously had the one of the longest droughts uh, ever. We were our hearts were always broken, uh, and 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 then magically in the two thousands it turned around, and we became this dominant team, which I think took the fun out of it because there's something sweet and romantic about being a perpetual loser, like yeah. Charlie Brown, but. Uh, yeah. You know, maybe it was time. It was time for them to become champions. Yeah, and that's that's often a thing that we see with uh, sports teams. You know, that like if we win just once, that's all. You know, that's all we want. But it turns out that actually, actually, maybe just winning it once and then the famine restarts again, and you can have your fun again. Uh, you know, after yes. ten years of of pain. But uh, yeah, I mean, there there are people in the county of Mayo listening to this corner who'd be like, "Just give me the damn old mm-hmm. Ireland and let's just be done with it, and then we can we can try this famine crap again in the next century." No, the minute they win, that's not how it works. The minute you win, you're crushed if you don't get it the next year. Mm. So to the people of Mayo, there's no such thing. You can tell yourself, "Oh, just let us have it once, and we'll never complain again." That's a lie. <laughs> They'd be, they'll be tearing their hair out if they don't win it two years in a row. It's the nature of these things. Murph, before you rank Conan Sporting Life, most unusually, you want to do a special bonus points round. Uh, yes, uh, Owen. Um, I have a short question that I would like uh, Conan O'Brien to answer for me. Uh, what would your nickname be if you were a professional wrestler slash boxer? So it's in the wrestling or boxing ring. I'm not, I'm not fussy. Uh, I'd be called Ham Hands. <laughs> ham hands. My hands, my hands are like boiled hams, uh, and and so I'd be I'd be Conan Ham Hand O'Brien, and you know, and it's just it's a it's a great image. A man with two giant hams for fists, and down to the point where I've even on the holidays I put little cloves on my hands, you know, little cloves and a little bit of honey and, and bake it for an extra hour to give it that nice sweet sheen. And then I'm pummeling my opponent. I'm pounding his melon with my ham hands. And when they're done, they're knocked out and there's just ham grease all over their face. Conan ham hands that is, is coming uh... to Ireland. And I'll fight, I'll fight your strongest your strongest opponent. <laughs> Ireland, this is my challenge to you. I'll f- and I fight in the old style. I get my hands way out in front. Marcus of Queensbury style. Yeah, I like it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Marcus of Queensbury, and I get my hands way out front. 
And let me tell you something. I'm not wearing a shirt, and it's not pretty. But that's what's going to happen. I'm coming to your your town, your little village. I'm coming. Give me your strongest man. Extra marks for ham hands. He definitely should. Let's find out as we rank this sporting life. Hope you're ready for this. Of Conan O'Brien. Here we go. You don't understand. I could have had class. You don't have stars in this game, Mrs. Weaver. Well, what do you have then? People like me. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. I want to thank you, first of all, for fronting up like this. Many of your A-list, your peers, such as Tom Cruise, Margot Robbie, and His Holiness Pope Francis, have balked at the idea of coming on this show solely for fear <laughs> of my ruthless score assembly techniques. Cowards! They're all cowards! See, this is... I love this. So to recap, it is now up to me to carefully study your all-time sporting highlight, pick an athlete that I feel most closely resembles you and your sporting achievements, and then give you a score out of 100 to see if you can overtake Glamour's global editor-in-chief, and first-rate Irish woman Samantha Barry's 78 points from two weeks ago and put you oh. in pole position to be crowned our non-sports person sports person for 2023. Samantha, I've been I've been trailing Samantha for a long time. She always wins. <laughs> Not this time. I'm confident. Uh, firstly, I have to say you get points for your magnificently lean and toned torso. I know that any time a rib cage gets over four and a half feet in length, it becomes fiendishly difficult to protect. <laughs> so kudos to you. Uh, catching foul balls at the ballpark is an American staple. Richard Ford, author Richard Ford, grossly exaggerated a foul ball story for us a couple of years ago. So I'm gratified to see your honesty here today. Ford sailed over four rows to catch his one, apparently. But no, you're Bullshit. an honest Joe. Your, uh, your love of Boston, your magnificent hair, and your almost entirely translucent skin remind me of no one more than the great Larry Bird, the hick from French Lake, uh, yes. who is only marginally less beloved in your hometown. Uh, some would say young Conan's habit of going into character during basketball games was adorably creative and deserving of extra points. <laughs> Others, like me, would say that playing against the Phantom is the single most annoying way to play basketball. Other, <laughs> other naysayers will ask me to deduct points for piddling details like your complete lack of any sporting ability whatsoever. And I will take that on board, of course. <laughs> but to make that foul ball catch, despite your uselessness, does make it all the more impressive. You get eight bonus points for your WWE nickname of Ham Hamad. Christ, I went to journalism school. But as everyone knows, if you're over 75 inches in height, you're all right by me. This year's leading score was 78 points. But get the hell out of the way, everybody, because you've just scored 84 points. Conan, yes! Ham Hands O'Brien, this has been yes! your sporting life. Yes. Happy with that? This is, this is, a, this is a great honor. This is a great honor, gentlemen. Thank you very much. I hope you realize just how uh, honorable a situation this is. Well, listen, I was listening to your computations and I found it to be flawless. Uh, uh, thank you. There's thank really, you. I mean, you could have people listen to this interview a thousand times and they'll always come up. I mean, I'm talking about top ranked mathematicians. Of course. And they'll always come up with that same score. You nailed it. <laughs> Can I just say that? Uh, over the years, I've gotten a lot of stick for my uh, scoring algorithm. So, um, well, for some, you to, for you to go on the record, have doubted it. Yes, for yes. you to go on the record like this, Conan, it means a lot to me on a personal level. So, I I thank you for your kind words, and uh, Excelsior. You know, let's let's just Conan, let's just all go for it's this. It's been such a joy to have you on Captain Saturday today. Honestly, it's been amazing. We we highly recommend your brilliant podcast, Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend. I know you're oh, a huge thank you. You're a huge Neil Young fan. If you'd like to pick a song, we can play it out today in your honor. Oh, my God. Wow. Any Neil Young song? Yeah. You know what? Helpless. I'm just going to go simple. Helpless. What yeah. a sweet, sad song. This is 
Helpless by Neil Young. Conan Ham Hans O'Brien, thank you so much. It's been an honor. A round Guys, of applause. Guys, thank you very much. And I hope, uh, I, I would honestly like to uh, get together. I, I will get to Dublin. And when yes. I do, it'd be nice if we got together. That'd be fun. Well, no, because you're just going to talk to other people for the entire time. So <laughs> I don't know if we're going to do no, this. I'll, I'll start talking to you <laughs> until anyone else comes over. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds amazing, Conan. We'd love to do that. Round of applause, please, for Conan O'Brien. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. There is a town in North Ontario Stream comfort memory despair And in my mind I still need a place to go All my changes were there Helpless sung by Neil Young with Crosby, Stills and Nash is how we're going to play out today's show because we've gone over time. Conan O'Brien has bowled us over right up to the end of the hour. <laughs> that was that was an experience. That guy's something else. Man. Wow. The, the energy, on, uh, it's, I'm kind of blown away. I'm a little blown away. On. I hope you all enjoyed it as much as we did. Thanks again to all ham hands for appearing on the show. Thanks also <laughs> to Eduardo and the rest of Conan's team for sorting everything out. On the Los Angeles side, this has been a Second Captains production for RTE. The show was produced by Killian Down. Mark Horgan is the series producer for Second Captains. Our thanks to Johnny Lanagan and RTE. Get yourself onto secondcaptains.com for more great chats daily and our full set of podcasts during the week. Stay tuned to RTE Radio 1 for Saturday Sport coming right up. Thanks, Murph. Thank you, Owen. That was a lot of fun. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Second Captain, first Captain, whatever. <laughs>